Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Tuesday, August 30th. We begin with our weekly conversation with Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. This week, Mercedes brings us the latest on the incident earlier this week that saw Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland being harassed and threatened in Grand Prairie. Kids head back to the classroom this week, the first normal return since 2019. But what precautions have been put in place by the CBE to prepare for any potential COVID or even a monkeypox outbreak ahead of the new year? We'll talk with Christopher Usi, Chief Superintendent of the CBE. Have you been a victim of flight cancellation? Besides the inconvenience, it can be a real battle trying to get a refund from an airline for a canceled flight. But now the process may be getting easier. We get details from the travel lady, Leslie Cater. And finally, monarch butterfly populations have significantly declined over the past few decades. In fact, the species is now considered endangered. We talked with a professor from Mount St. Vincent University whose research suggests the conservation efforts need to be widely expanded to ensure the survival of this beautiful butterfly. Video of a man harassing and threatening Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland went viral this past weekend during her trip to Grand Prairie. Joining us to talk about that video and the response and fallout from it is Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block, Mercedes Stevenson. Hi, Mercedes. Hi, how are you? Excellent. Thanks so much for joining us. Boy, yeah, it was, uh, I, I think it made a whole lot of women feel, I don't know, kind of cringy is not even the right word. I just think it was a, a, a terrible thing that we watched that video, the confrontation of Christian Freeland and the, the man in uh, Grand Prairie. What's sort of been the latest talk in, in Ottawa as a response to this? Well, there's a lot of talk about the possibility of cabinet ministers having RCMP security with them. It might come as a surprise to some Canadians that they don't. When this happened, I got emails from some viewers and, and messages on social media saying, well, where, where's her RCMP detail? Well, most Canadian politicians don't have that. It's the prime minister. Um, it's not like in the United States, if you see the secretary of state or the, the secretary of finance, they have all kinds of protection. Um, and this has been the case in a number of other countries as well. So now there's discussion, does this need to happen in Canada? I find that discussion kind of sad because part of what's been so great uh, about you know, being Canadian is this access that we have to people. Parliament Hill, mm-hmm. uh, people get together and they do yoga right up against the hill. You would not see that in Washington. You would not be doing yoga directly in front of the Capitol because there would be concerns about threats. Uh, Canada has always been a place that's been very accessible. Politicians have been accessible. Um, and now we're looking at a scenario where there is very real concern um, about what is happening. This is not a partisan thing. These threats have happened to Michelle Rempel as well on the right. Um, and I think it's unfortunate when we see people try to reduce this to saying, well, it's about the angry right or, you know, this is about liberals wanting to... to um, bring themselves off from the public. You talk to women on Parliament Hill, doesn't matter what party they're in, they've experienced things like this, and they've experienced threats on their family. Um, and I can tell you it's happening with women journalists too. We've talked about it before on the show. After my father died, I put security cameras on my mother's house because she was so frightened after the threats she'd seen against my family on social media. That stuff shouldn't be happening here because of what our jobs are, whether it's a politician, whatever your political stripe is, whether it's because you're a journalist or any other career. um, It's a real change. It did not used to be like this. And I see some folks out there saying it's free speech. Well, absolutely, you have a right to free speech. There's a difference between free speech and verbally abusing somebody or you advance towards them and they're backed into an elevator. Mm -hmm. Um, there, There is a sense of intimidation there. And as you said, Sue, If you talk to most women about how they would feel with a large male advancing screaming verbal abuse, it's threatened. Mm 
Um, it, it wouldn't feel like, I don't like your policies. I want you out of office. You have every right to show up and protest and chant and yell whatever you want. Uh, but there's also something to be said about dignity and discourse and chasing someone down and screaming, uh, you know, all kinds of words that we can't repeat on a morning radio show at them. Um, that's just anger. It's rage. And, and there might be lots of legitimate rage in this country in different parts for different reasons. But how that's expressed says something about our democracy. And there's real concern in, in Ottawa and in many MPs' ridings uh, for the security of members of Parliament in a, a world where it's, it's now not only being um, justified but glorified to approach politicians in this way versus saying, hey, I want to talk to you. I disagree with your policies, and I think they've been really damaging to this province, and this is why. Um, that's very different than screaming a, a number of profanities and backing people you know, right into an elevator, which they were getting in anyhow. But if you've ever been in a small space with someone yelling and advancing at You're you, uh, mm. not a good feeling. Yeah. Not a good feeling. Absolutely. That's, uh, hopefully we can move past something like that. Also in the news, we've uh, heard the Minister of Foreign Affairs, Melanie Jolie, announcing that Canada will invoke a 1977 agreement between Canada and the U.S. to keep the Line 5 pipeline alive. What can you tell us that's within this agreement and, and what we might expect from it? So basically there's a court case happening in Wisconsin right now to try to stop the pipeline, shut it down. It's already active, as we know, but they, they but want to stop it from um, continuing and this is something that the government, um, and this may surprise some listeners, the Trudeau government is saying is really essential to the economy. They're saying if it gets shut down, the effect on jobs um, and Canadian economy will be absolutely devastating. So they have invoked this 1977 treaty, which essentially triggers negotiations between the two countries. So it puts the court case on ice before the court can rule. Um, and the hope is that they can try to negotiate this through. We'll see. I mean, Joe Biden has been and very clear that he's not interested in Line 5. We saw this with Keystone 2, um, that, that we could see another situation like that. But there is a lot of hope from the government that at least triggering these negotiations. Um, I, I spoke to some senior sources last night, and they were really worried this court was going to rule against the Line 5 pipeline. They say they support some of why the court case was brought, which include, sorry, brought, uh, which includes concerns about where the pipeline would run uh, and that it, it could be running through Indigenous lands. They say they support Indigenous people's rights to their lands, but there are other ways to run the pipeline that wouldn't take it through there and would still allow it to continue. Um, so so in this time of very high gas prices and very high inflation, it seems like uh, the government is putting aside some of the environmental concerns they say they have uh, about pipelines and saying that this is a pipeline that is really essential for the economy and it has to go ahead. Mercedes, let's talk a, a little bit closer to home for us. We're about a month away from now from selecting the next leader of Alberta's UCP party. Therefore, the next temporary, yes, but premier of Alberta as well. Are you hearing anything in Ottawa and from parliamentarians in particular about the next leader of Alberta and the options that are out there? I, I think a lot of people are watching with interest. Um, I think a lot of people remember Danielle Smith, so she naturally comes to mind for folks because... She was a former party leader, so she's someone that, that people outside Alberta had had sort of political awareness of. Um, I think there's a lot of interest to see what's going to happen with who wins in the proposed Alberta Sovereignty Act. I think there's a lot of interest in how Pierre Paglia interacts in that space. 
uh, because obviously he wants Alberta votes, um, but he also knows he has to win Ontario and Quebec. Uh, how is he going to handle a premier there who brings in a sovereignty act? He might say he's going to endorse it. How does that change if he potentially becomes the next prime minister? Um, because, you know, just because people are conservative or liberal and striped doesn't mean they always line up provincially and federally on all of their angles. So I think there's um, there's certainly a lot of curiosity. Alberta is such an important province, and, and it's so important for the fiscal health of the country. Um, and it's also sort of this unique political environment in Canada. I, I'm very grateful I grew up there as someone who covers politics, because it's just sort of, sort of, sort of naturally, organically political all the time, uh, with people talking about that in, in a way that I haven't experienced in some of the other places that I've lived in Canada. Um, and I think that to, it, it's always sort of a bit of an experiment almost. In Alberta, it's often a leader, and um, there's a lot of interest to see which way Albertans are actually going to go when it comes not only to leadership, but of course to the polls when that leader is tested in an election. Mercedes, putting a cap on a, a very busy summer. Thanks for your time. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I'm Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. Calgary schools preparing to welcome the kids back to the classroom this week and next. But have they prepared for a potential resurgence of COVID, say? Joining us to talk about it this morning is Christopher Usi, who is the Calgary Board of Education Chief Superintendent of Schools. Good morning to you, Christopher. Appreciate your time. Well, good morning. Thank you for having me. Okay, so in-person learning, we know, has been disrupted uh, a few times over the past couple of years. Uh, virtual learning, has that been completely put in the past for now, or is that still an option depending on what happens down the road? Uh, no, uh, the, 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 the majority of our families uh, overwhelmingly prefer in-person learning, and certainly we understand the value of that. So uh, we are looking forward to a more typical start to the school year, and now. Uh, uh, hopefully uh, all goes well and uh, there will be little or no disruptions this school year. What measures, uh, Christopher, uh, has the CBE put into place to prevent any potential spread of COVID? We know COVID's not over yet, or even monkeypox this year. Have discussions been had at the CBE ranks? Well, certainly we continue, uh, as always, uh, to work very closely with our health uh, authorities, uh, our brother health, and also uh, uh, the, the ministry uh, in terms of any uh, potential uh, 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 updates with respect to uh, um, issues that affect students' health. What I would say to you, though, in our schools, we continue to emphasize proper hygiene because that's important. As you know, as you're well aware, there's, uh, there's no, no restrictions with respect to uh, expectations for students to wear masks to school. However, you know, if uh, students uh, wish to do so, that option, it's, uh, it's, it's really up to them, but uh, that's not a requirement in our schools. So I think those proper hygiene, and also uh, just reminding families, as we do this time each year, uh, just uh, if students are feeling unwell, to just uh, keep them at home, because that's just a uh, very good practice. Now, will there be any discussions about, you know, just kind of making it clear if kids do want to wear masks, that's A-OK, and, and talking about how the other kids need to be comfortable with that as well, that that's someone's choice. And then, you know, beyond that, are there things in the school like hand sanity, et cetera, moving forward? Well, uh, yes, uh, to both. Uh, indeed, uh, we'll continue to uh, to take those precautions uh, in our schools. Again, as I said earlier, in terms of proper hygiene, uh, uh, with respect to uh, just again uh, being kind and being uh, 
not just only being kind, but uh, certainly uh, respecting uh, each person's uh, wish. Uh, that is the conversation we've had, uh, you know, back to the last school year uh, or early this uh, this calendar year, I should say, when uh, those those uh, re- restrictions uh, were were relaxed and uh, and uh, today it's, uh, students have uh, conducted themselves uh, appropriately, and uh, you know I know that will continue to happen in our schools. How will a positive COVID case uh, be handled by schools? What sorts of uh, uh, protocols are in place? Uh, and are students uh, forced to go home at that point? What's going what's gonna to look like this year? Yes, well, that's, uh, that's uh, again, uh, we take our directions from, uh, from health. Uh, so what happens is when students are they're positive, again, uh, students are expected to, to stay home. Uh, to, to stay at home and uh, until such time that, that they're no longer positive. And I think, again, um, that is, uh, you know, those, der- those processes will work very closely uh, with our better health uh, in terms of managing those situations. But uh, that practice will continue. Uh, that was a practice in place prior to the end of the school year. Uh, this last school year, and uh, we'll continue that practice going forward. So if students, are, you know, if they're positive or if they're feeling unwell for, you know, it's flu season as well as uh, we're coming up to flu season. So it's just good practice to uh, to stay home until such time that uh, folks are well. Christopher, what about staff? Are you hearing any concerns from your staff, whether it be support staff or the teachers themselves, about coming back to class and, and how things will be looking as we move forward and into this school year? Uh, 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 yes, uh, in terms of uh, specific to uh, an example would be uh, dealing with uh, the staffing challenge that we had in terms of uh, uh, substitute teachers. Uh, we spent quite a bit of time uh, this summer uh, increasing that list, adding more names to the list. So we are uh, in a very good place. We are uh, hopefully, uh, we ho- we're hopeful that uh, that there will be minimal disruption and, and disruption in terms of uh, unfilled jobs, but in terms of uh, teachers uh, feeling uh, uh, uneasy, I think uh, we are in a better sp- space this year than we were last year. Understandably, given all the uh, uncertainties around COVID, I think there are good lessons learned, and uh, and staff, uh, based on what I'm seeing and what's happening in our schools, are excited to be back and looking very much uh, to welcome students back on Thursday. What about, you know, some of those things that were impacted greatly? I mean, the education, tip of the hat to CB and all educators in the province for keeping our kids, you know, on, on the path. But a lot of the extras, like extracurricular and sports, impacted, I'm thinking, concerts to a certain extent. Are we expecting to see things back to normal when it comes to those extras, Christopher? Uh, yes, and they've been back uh, to, to, to some semblance of normalcy uh, even before the end of the last school year. So because we believe that those uh, extracurricular activities are really, really important to, uh, to you know, students' learning experience in schools. So, so yes, parents can expect uh, that, that those will, will continue, and uh, we look very much uh, to, uh, to providing those opportunities to our students. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Appreciate it. We're looking forward to a great school year for the kids. Well, likewise. Thank you so much, and have a good day. You too. That is Christopher Usi, who is the CBE Chief Superintendent of Schools. Have you faced flight cancellations, disruptions at the airport? Well, Canada might be making it a little easier for you to get a refund now. Passengers getting some sort of a payback for all the trouble we've been through. Let's talk to the travel lady, Leslie Cater, and get all the details. Hi, Les. Hi, good morning, Sue. Good morning. What, what do we know? What's the scoop now? Uh, how are they making it easier for us? Okay, so there's changes now to the regulations for the air passenger protection rights. And um, until September 8th, under the old system, if there was a flight delay of three hours or more, 
outside of the airline's control, then the airline had to rebook them on a partner airline or provide a refund. Okay, we know that the refunds were not easy to get because we were getting, uh, you know, credits instead. After September 8th, they tightened this whole thing up a little bit. If a delay of three hours or more is outside the airline's control, even if it's outside their control, they must rebook the passenger on a partner airline or another airline within 48 hours. So it's interesting that, you know, then whoever is available to take that passenger, um, they must be rebooked or they must provide a refund. Now, a refund has to be paid within uh, 48 hours. Uh, I beg your pardon, they've got to be booked within 48 hours, but their refund has to be provided within the month, Mm -hmm. which is a whole lot different to a hearing because people weren't getting refunds. Hmm. Yeah, that was a lot on social media and family and friends. I'm wondering what what comes to mind uh, during our conversation. I know that a lot of credit cards have protections built within them. Has that been something that travelers who've had cancellation been able to use as a credit card to call your credit card company and say, the flight was canceled, I need my money back? Uh, You know, that's what we call a repudiation. So when you call the credit card company and say service wasn't uh, provided, therefore I want to repudiate. Credit card companies have got a lot stronger with that now and a lot more strict. And not every credit card gives any kind of insurance of that nature. I've had a lot of people who have relied on credit cards for cancellations of travel arrangements, only to find out at the end of the day that that protection is not there. So uh, a bit of an iffy area for sure. But one of the most interesting things to me, Andrew, with these new rules, Uh, is one of them said, if the passenger is no longer at their point of origin, in fact, so you've left home already, Mm. and their travel no longer serves a purpose, the airline will be required to refund the ticket and book the passenger on a flight back to their home place, free of charge. And I think this calls into uh, something like somebody's booked a tour or they're going on a cruise, suddenly they're stranded in London or Toronto and the cruise has left. So the person's thinking, well, there's no point in me going anymore. Interesting. Um, is it better or worse to go with a travel agency? Is it Does it matter in this case to go with someone, you know, like you, Leslie? I think having a travel agent to walk you through the problems of all of this, we have just recently, with all the flight disruptions, we've been going the route of booking people directly with the airline okay. so that everybody's got a little bit more control than third-party wholesale consolidated tickets. So that's uh, helped a little bit with that. Okay. But, yeah, I mean, we're the ones who sit on hold for eight hours, yeah, not yeah, you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, we'll, yeah. we'll send people to your website, thetravellady.ca. Always a great place to get information. Thank you so much for the update. Have a wonderful day. Thank you, guys. Leslie Cater is the travel lady. Monarch butterfly populations have declined significantly over the past decades, leading the species to be added to the endangered species list. Joining us to talk about conservation efforts now to save this species of butterfly is Columba Gonzalez-Duarte, who is an assistant professor of sociology and anthropology at Mount St. Vincent University. Good morning to you, Professor. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Can we talk about some numbers then? How significantly have monarch butterfly populations declined? What were we at and and now sit at? 
Well, the numbers have varied across the years, but the trend is consistent. The numbers are down. Some years it's 30% down, some years it goes a little bit up and then down again. So, for example, last year it was 30% up, but this year, again, the trend seems to be going in decline. So it's hard to say it based on a year number, but the overall trend is in decline, and that's the reason it was listed as in danger. Professor, what can we point to that's behind this population decline? From a sociological and anthropological perspective, I point to the overall inequality across the different countries that host the butterfly, Canada, United States, and Mexico. We have um, ecology that is damaged by our social and economic system, basically. So they don't have what they need to thrive then, uh, whether it's Canadian, U.S., or Mexican soil? They don't have a healthy habitat um, across the three countries. Uh, This could be for different reasons. It could be displacement due to agrotoxic um, business that use herbicides that kill the host plants of this butterfly. It could be um, just increasing development in different areas of North America, and it could be also the shrinking of the overwinter habitat in Mexico. What can we do to, to safeguard this species? What can we do to, to help it come back? Well, this is like a complex question. It's not a single answer. That's part of what my research tells us, is that we need to care for the North American ecologies holistically. We can not only care for the monarchs in Mexico or in Canada or in the United States. We need to do it throughout the three countries, and we also do need to do it locally. So, And that means, as I said, in often in my research, that it needs to care for the butterflies as much as we care for the humans. I don't think we can't point only to conservation for the butterfly, but we need to care for the habitat holistically. And that means, as I said, just putting attention in our local ecologies, but also transnationally. Yeah, I mean, bringing it front center, right? We hear so much about conservation and honeybees and people planting in order to help that, that species thrive. Is that something we just sort of need to start creating as well with the butterfly in mind? Well, that's ongoing already. We do have lots of butterfly gardens and pollinator gardens across U.S. and Canada, but it doesn't seem to be enough, and those initiatives have been going on for the last 20 years at least. So we do for sure want to have more of that, but uh, not like islands, right? We need to have a connected habitat that just promotes those corridors that monarchs need to migrate across the three countries. So yes, for sure, we need to do a little bit more of that, but we also need to make efforts that go beyond um, the country's borders. Obviously, you're mentioning these countries and and actually going beyond the borders. I'm wondering what sort of a network you have or is there a network uh, as far as those hoping to care for these butterflies and make that difference? Is this something that you're in communication with? There is different initiatives to create networks um, of national parks. But unfortunately, uh, as you may know, uh, parks are becoming isolated areas. We have a national park here, another one there, but they are not connected. So ideally, we will need more than national parks, uh, just habitats that are connected um, through networks that could be protected differently. They don't necessarily need the national park model. It could be just having corridors across cities, for example. But the point is that they do need that healthy habitat that allows them to migrate. And as I said, uh, for me, it's important to insist that we need a healthy habitat for monarchs as much as we need it for humans. Mm -hmm. Thanks so much for your time this morning. Really appreciate it, Professor.
Thank you so much thank you for having me. That is Columba Gonzalez Duarte, who is the Assistant Professor of Sociology and Anthropology at Mount St. Vincent University. To me, when it comes to, you know, of this, of the insect variety, bees, and yeah, now it's the butterflies, for sure. makes you think what's next and what can we do? And oftentimes it's little things, but many of us doing little things. It doesn't have to be moving mountains per se, but uh, in this case, when I asked the professor about that, the communication, she has a concern and there's concerns in the scope of this. A lot of it does get down to, to talking to people and, and spreading the word. And and organizations like our own Calgary Zoo yeah, Wilder Institute, right, who do such incredible work with conservation efforts for so many species. I have no doubt they have something in the works with the butterfly as well. And I do love the butterfly building at the Calgary Zoo. It is my most peaceful place to go and sit. Where you can find Sue if she's at the zoo.